right and wrong, life and death. Those were the two paths put before Israel as they were about to enter the promised land from the wilderness. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the law. It's Moses's final speech in which he pleads with Israel to choose right over wrong. And this speech contains many warnings and provisions, commands and restrictions that were meant to give Israel direction onto the path that would lead them away from destruction and into life. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. They would live with God and have life. But if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. They would be exiled from the land and would die. So Moses passed on the law so Israel might know wrong from right. And while there are moments of obedience to God's commands, as we trace Israel's history through the Bible, we find that this guarantee about disobedience and exile ultimately stands. Generation after generation disregarded Deuteronomy and its demands. They ran after death, slamming the door on the God of life and his law written on stone. They forgot God and his commands and began defining right and wrong on their own. But there is good news. For even though we all broke the law written on stone, God's promise of a Moses-like prophet was not taken back or overthrown. Even though we broke God's word, God would not break his. For just as permanent as all the commands and punishments were God's promises that he would come and fix all of our brokenness. And that's who Jesus is, the prophet like Moses who upholds all of God's commandments. He perfectly held together what we could only break. He fulfilled what the law required and put it in its proper place. Jesus reversed the curse our stone hearts had earned by giving us the life he lived and taking on the death we deserved. And he does all of this to take us back to the place Israel was at first, on the border of a new and better promised land where heaven and earth will merge. Good morning, Hope Ames. My name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you. Thanks for being here today. I want to open up with that clip that covers the book of Deuteronomy because if you're following us through our year-long series called The Whole Holy Bible in a Year, you may be reading The Whole Holy Bible with us. Some of you are reading through the New Testament track and those of you uh, who either have infinite amount of time or you're just like a really devoted student of the Word of God, which I really respect either way, uh, you are about halfway through the book of Deuteronomy. And, and I want to show you how the book of Deuteronomy actually plugs in incredibly well with the things that we're studying in the New Testament this week as well. So the book of Deuteronomy, as the poet would put it in that video, said that God's people are on the border. They're about to enter into a new season of life and they're about to see the way that God intended for them to live and where he wanted them to live. How would they handle that? Let's take a look at the book of Deuteronomy and what's happening. If you come to our Bible class on Thursday night, you'll get a really in-depth look at this. Uh, at least the most that we can do in about an hour's time together. But I want to give you some highlights here. First off, what's the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book 
in the Bible. It's to remind the people of what God had done and encourage them to rededicate their lives to him. It's Greek for second law. That doesn't mean that it's a new law. God's redone the law. It's actually a review of what God has already done. You could probably divide the book of Deuteronomy into three different sections. The first section is we're looking back at what God has done for us. The second section is we're looking up in praise and adoration. And the third section is we're looking forward to what God is calling us into. What are they looking back at? God has saved his people. They were living in slavery in Egypt. If you've been following along with us throughout 2023 so far, you've heard these stories over and over again. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is doing. It's repeating these stories. It's repeating these laws. Repetition is helpful in the lessons that we learn. And God's doing that for his people here. You're on the border. You're about to enter into a new season of life. And I would like for you to see the new way that you are called to live. Here's the setting. They're on the east side of the Jordan River in the view of Canaan. This is the promised land. They're about to see it. They're about to experience it. If we were to pick out a key verse, you couldn't really just pick out one, but maybe here's one of the many. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. God has these commands for his people, and it's not so that they would earn his love, but because he loves them, because of his faithful love, it would produce this obedience in their lives. Now, it's one thing to obey God because God is God and God is powerful over everything. And there's just that authoritative structure and system that we should follow as creations of the creator. But God's gone further than that. God doesn't want you to listen to him just because he's God, but also because he loves you. He's not demanding your obedience because he's stronger than you. He's allowing for our obedience because this strong and all-powerful God would choose to love us. Here are three portions, three verses from the book of Deuteronomy that kind of highlight what's happening here. This look back, this look up, and this look forward. This is what God wants for his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, it says, People do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 6.13, it says, You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. 6 verse 16, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa. Now, if those words sound familiar because you were listening to the Bible reading this morning, you already see where I'm going. But what's supposed to be happening here? What does God desire for his people? I think that God is desiring for his people, if you want fruitfulness in your life, if you want fulfillment in your life, feast on the word of God. God is going to supply the physical needs for his people. That's why when they're wandering through the wilderness before they're about to enter the promised land, he produces this thing called manna. It's like supernatural Wheaties from heaven. It's really incredible stuff. He's going to provide that. Like the physical food matters. But he's saying, if you want real fulfillment and purpose, feast on my word. And then he's also saying, if you want meaning, if you want to see real value, look up, see me, obey my commands. Not because I'm angry or mean or controlling, but because I want you to flourish. And then finally, trust God. I mean, if you want real security in this life, we don't have to keep on going back to God and saying, are you going to be faithful to me? 
God is saying, look back. I've been faithful to you in the past. And as the true God who only speaks truth, I will not change on that. Look back, look up, look forward. This is what Deuteronomy is about. As they're about to enter this new space, Deuteronomy tells how humans live in creation. But there is a word that I want to throw in before human in creation there. Deuteronomy tells how true humans live in true creation. When we are living in lives of sin and when we obey to the broken kingdoms of this world, it's not that God's upset just because we're being immoral. When we're doing something that's not good for our body, it's not God's upset just because it's not a good thing. God is upset and disappointed in this because it's not the way that people are supposed to live. And people are supposed to live in a way that is flourishing, that is fruitful, that creates. If you were at our Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday night, Carrie Birchka said, God created you from good and for good. When we're living these lives of disobedience, it's that we are actually disobeying the one who says, I want this to be a good place for you and for all people. God wants us to live as true humans, the way he originally intended for true creation. In order to get that, you need to go to the true creator of it. So many of us, we're going for obedience to these different systems of the world, these different people, these different pleasures, whatever it might be, because it brings about this like maybe instant gratification. But have you ever tried to learn from someone about something and they're not an expert in that thing? Uh, my wife and I were just brutally reminded of this last weekend. I wasn't here last weekend. Uh, my wife and I, we uh, took a last-minute trip to Colorado. My mom, as you know, uh, if you've been attending Hope for a while, she works for Southwest Airlines. So I get to fly for free my whole life. It's amazing. I just fly on standby. If there's a seat open, we get on, we go. It's, it's perfect. She is retiring, so pray for me. <laughs> my life's about to change dramatically. Abby married into what she thought was a fun and outgoing family. She's about to see how frugal I am. But I had an experience last weekend with her where, we, where like, I accidentally was not very frugal. We, we went skiing when we were in Colorado. Here, here's a few pictures. There's my wife, Abby, looking so cool. And, and there's us with our, our neat Top Gun impersonation helmets and goggles. And uh, let, let me tell you this. We, we look cool right there, don't we? Uh, we don't know how to ski. And I was reminded of that last weekend. But, but I was telling myself, you know, I mean, everything in life has a hack to it, right? I mean, you could find out how to live this life by watching a few TikTok, you know, videos or a few Instagram highlight reels, like life hacks. Here's how you do You don't learn how to do life through hacks, do you? But, but I tried, so I looked up on YouTube how to ski. One of, the, one of the silliest things I've ever done in my life. But I had seen this video... And because when we show up to the ski resort, if, if you want to call it that, I, I also didn't realize how expensive skiing is. <laughs> like, if Abby and I can have kids, like, I hope they don't want to go to college, like, because that's gone now. Oh my goodness, so I'm already kind of in this bad mood, and then we're sitting on this bench, and this guy named Danimal, his actual name is Danimal, his name tag said Danimal, and someone next to me asks, is your real name Danimal? He goes, yeah, can you believe it? I'm like, no, I can't, you're a, you're a cartoon, this is crazy. And meanwhile, he's taking these like, like bear trap boots and just, just slamming my legs. No, come on, it's supposed to be tight. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to feel that way. I'm like, this is no fun. Why do people pay for this? And then meanwhile, we go on, like, because 
I, I'm 30. My, my wife, is it weird? She doesn't, you don't care, right? My wife is 28, right? So we're, we're adults. Like, we, we're, we're, we're good, you know, we're, we're, we should be able to do things. But we get in the line with the five-year-olds. And we're going on this, we're not going on the ski lift. We're going on the, on the magic carpet, as they call it, I think. That just, like, you stand on it. And it just takes you up this little bunny hill. And as we're trying to, like, navigate our way down, I'm trying to be cool. I'm like, yeah, no, Abby. So, like, what do you do is you, the video told me that you, you bring your skis in and you make, like a, like, a pizza slice. And that's how you stop. And if you want to turn, you kind of just shift your weight. And it's, you know, it's really instinctual, really. Like, we're, we're humans. We can do this. We'll feel the snow. It, it appeared to me very quickly I was going to have to fake a lot if I was going to continue to appear to be cool to my wife. Sure enough, like we made our way down the bunny hill and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I really want the full experience. So we go over to the ski lift, like the real one, and we get on there and we sit next to this woman who, who lives in Colorado and she's like, where are you guys from? And I'm like, oh, we're from Ames, Iowa. She goes, no way, I have a brother who lives in Ames. And she invited you to church, so I hope you're here. But anyway, and so as we're on the way up, we're about to get off at this one location about halfway up the mountain. She goes, no, 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 no. You need to go to the top of the mountain. Trust me, it's easy. It's so, like, it just winds your way down. Like, really, it won't be that bad. So we get off on the ski lift. First off, when you get off on a ski lift, that right there is a ski ride. <laughs> like, the person who's running the ski lift says, lean forward, lean, lean forward. And we're like, what? And sure enough, I had face plant to the snow coming off. We get up off, and sure enough, as the woman who's sitting next to us, at first it's just like, I'm like, wow, this is, skiing is easy. This is incredible. And then we turn the corner, and we don't see a hill. We see a cliff diving event. <laughs> and I look at my wife, and she looks at me, and we say, nice knowing you. Like, <laughs> we vowed to each other till death do us part, and here it is. <laughs> sermon got real morbid real fast. And so like, we, we start making our way down, like, it's pathetic. Like, we're getting in the way of the real skiers, like the seven-year-olds, you know, have graduated from the magic carpet ride thing. And, and like, I keep on falling, and my skis keep on falling off. And I keep on saying, you know, I'm just waiting to make sure that you can come down, Abby. I just want to make sure I watch. And she goes, really? I said, no, I fell. <laughs> At one point, we're both getting so frustrated, and I'm telling Abby, you can do it. You can do hard things. I love you. Believe in yourself. You can do it. And she looks at me, and she goes, Stop telling me I can do things. <laughs> Especially when I don't know how to do them. Like, oh my goodness. The reality is, is I think that the people would cry out to God over and again, stop telling me I can do things when I can't do them. Now, what if we're crying out to a God who says, yeah, I don't know how to do them either. <laughs> It'd be like me, pathetic, awful. But eventually we kind of roll, slide, and eventually maybe a little bit ski our way down the mountain. We get to the bottom, and sure enough, there's Danimal teaching skiing lessons. And Danimal's like, how are you having fun? I'm like, no, this is terrible. <laughs> My ankles are bleeding. I still have blisters a week later. And he goes, oh, well, are you leaning forward? I'm like, why would I lean forward? I'd fall on my face. Be, That's like the fundamental of skiing. And Abby's like, lean forward, Danny, huh? Where was that in your YouTube video? <laughs> who are you going to to learn how to live this life? Like, who gets to tell you the way that creation's supposed to operate? Is it the latest fad or is it the creator of it all? Like Deuteronomy is telling us there is a true way to live this life in true creation. And it's good. 
Why are we going to all these different places and things? I mean, it's tempting. I get it. It's hard. But Deuteronomy is pointing us to the right way to live. Not because God's a controlling bully, but because, because God is cheering for you. If God were a ski coach, he'd be Danimal. He wouldn't be Danny tripping his way down the mountain. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, of course, there is this expectation that the people are going to be unable to pass this test, if you will. To be able to live fully the way that God intended them to, because they're facing distractions and detours all over the place. And so Deuteronomy chapter 18 points to someone. God says, I will raise up a prophet like you, and he's speaking to Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. Now, right there, just please know this. You're like, wait, Jesus, is he just a prophet? No. Jesus speaks prophecies, but he's even more than a prophet. The purpose of this passage is not to tell you that Jesus, that's it, that's all who he is. This is telling you an element of who Jesus is. I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among, their, from among the fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command from them. So what's Jesus, this Messiah, this one who's supposed to come, who's going to be like Moses, but even better than Moses, supposed to do? He's going to be absorbing the word of the creator of the universe. He's going to be so in tune and in touch with it that when he speaks it, it's like the creator himself is saying it. It's actually the creator himself saying it. When you squeeze him, the truth about him comes out. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Luke. We are going to meet the God that when you squeeze him, you will see the truth about him. You will see what really comes out about him. Does he really want what's good for his people? And we're also going to see what happens to people when we get squeezed. So that's where we find ourselves in this new series called Luke for Lent. That was a long introduction, but don't worry, the, the rest of the sermon won't be as long necessarily as the introduction. You know what? You never know, but let's just keep on going. Luke for Lent, that's where we find ourselves as we enter this season. So let me give you a quick introduction of the gospel according to Luke. There's a purpose. And it's fulfilling what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy. It's to offer an accurate account of the life of Jesus, presenting him as the perfect human and savior, the true human. The author's Luke and Colossians, it's revealed that he's a doctor. So he's a detail-oriented person. Uh, he recognizes different things. This is the longest gospel account. It's the most colorful. There's the most going on. Written somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. He's a close friend and companion of Paul. And he also wrote a sequel called the book of Acts, and we'll get into that later this year. The key verse that you could maybe find in the book of Luke is, Jesus is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Very similar to what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now, I need to stop right here and say, I've had a lot of people tell me throughout this year so far, I can't believe that as we're reading through the New Testament and the Old Testament, how these scriptures just line up. And when you preach, it seems like the topic you're speaking about that day just so happens to line up with what you're talking about in the Old Testament. And my dad's the one who put together this preaching schedule. And you know what he said about it? Total luck. <laughs> had no idea what we were doing. But maybe God knew what he was doing. And I think God knew what he was doing when he was putting together the story of Scripture and the story of our lives and the story of creation. So what's Luke telling us about Jesus? Luke is telling us that Jesus is the first human successful at being human. Like, truly successful at being human. 
He's showing us the systems of this world are broken indeed. And we know that. We don't really have to be convinced of that too much. There are people out there, there are even atheist scholars. There's one that I read one time saying, I don't know if I believe there's a God, but I certainly believe there's evil. Because we see it, we're faced with it. And sometimes we don't have all the answers to evil, and so maybe it makes us doubt our belief in God. Now, God, in the story of the Bible, and especially in our passage for today, God doesn't give us all the answers or origins of evil. But God does tell us what he's doing about evil. And that in the face of evil, he's not running away. This is where we picked up Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. That's odd. He was tempted there by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all that time, and he became very hungry. How is Jesus going to handle this? Just think for yourself for a quick moment. What do you do when you're hangry? What will Jesus do? Keep that in mind. Now, this is just such strange timing because right before this, in Luke chapter 3, we find out what Jesus was doing. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's on this spiritual high. Right before this, he had his baptism and the Father God declares from the heavens, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Jesus' life should be perfect now, right? Now, this is such an interesting story because almost every story we get about Jesus in the gospel accounts, the four books that tell the stories about Jesus' life and ministry, almost every single story that we get about Jesus has to do with these public events and lots of people around. There are eyewitness accounts. But this is a story that happened when Jesus was out by himself, which means the way that the gospel authors, and three out of the four of them tell this story, the way that they would have received the story is because Jesus told people this story himself. And why did Jesus think, this is a story about my alone time that I want people to know? Why did he think that? I think it's because there is a truth about temptation. Jesus is going to be tempted in the wilderness to abandon true living and true humanity. And it is that followers of Jesus, we face temptation. Just because you follow Jesus does not mean that temptation will leave your life. I think about this every single time that I drive by crumble cookies. <laughs> every time. You might think, Danny, that's just a prop. No, it's not. There's cookies in here. One is gone. Another is three-fourths gone. Because I am, I'm a tempted and flawed man. My wife doesn't eat these. I did that by myself. Last night, in one hour, less than an hour. Less than a half hour. <laughs> like, it's funny. I mean, like, we, when we think about temptation, we never think about good things, right? Like, oh, I'm tempted to do bad stuff. It's only the, it's only the bad stuff, right? But there's actually something deep and fascinating about this word tempted. The word tempted does not, is not inherently a bad word. In fact, when we translate the, the Greek word tempted into English, you'd actually have to use many different words to describe it. Sometimes it's a test, sometimes it's temptation, sometimes it's a trial, sometimes it's even a trick. But it kind of incorporates all these different things. And the point is this, every single one of us will face these things in our life. And in this story, you're seeing how the Spirit led Jesus into this place. So there's almost this double temptation, this double testing taking place. One from the Holy Spirit that Jesus is filled with, and one from the enemy, from the devil. That's kind of like mind-blowing to me. In this story, there is a test and a temptation. Both are taking place. And how will Jesus handle it? When Jesus encounters the devil, there is this conversation that starts. 
And we start to realize how deceptive, how manipulative, and how messed up the devil is. Because look at what the devil attacks first and foremost about Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, again, we pick up the story. It says, Then the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Do you see what the devil starts off with? The devil starts off with attacking Jesus' identity. If you're the Son of God. Don't you remember? Jesus was just baptized, and the Father from heaven, with this loud, booming voice, just said, You're my Son. And the devil wants to attack that. And what's he saying? He's attacking his identity by using his circumstances. Jesus' identity is the Son of God, but his circumstances are he's starving, he's hungry, he's weak, he's tired. Why? The devil's telling him, if God really loves you, if you're really the son of God, why are you living through hell right now? Why are you hurting so bad? Why are you hungry? Why are you angry? Why are you tired? What is the temptation for us? I think that the devil's first and foremost temptation for us is to assault and attack and try to deceive our security as God's children. Maybe God's telling you, how could you possibly be God's daughter? Look at your life. I mean, my goodness. I mean, if you're, if you're really God's daughter, you wouldn't be facing these things. And the devil says to him, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Come on. Supply for yourself because your father doesn't love you. And Jesus responds with words that will sound familiar to you. Jesus told him, no. People do not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from the word of God. Does it sound familiar? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Jesus is finding himself in a situation just like the people who had heard that command for the first time. God's people, Israel, they're freed from slavery and then they wander through the desert, through the wilderness, a wilderness similar to where Jesus found himself, both represented by a period of time that has the number 40 attached to it. And as they're facing their temptations and as they're facing their trials and as they're hungry and as they're broken and as they're angry and as they're facing a test, they cry out to God, why don't you love us? You should have let us die in Egypt. There at least we had enough food to eat. Will Jesus pass the test that people failed? Jesus is not telling you that your daily food, that your physical food doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Jesus ate physical food. He shared it with his disciples. He fed crowds of thousands of people. He cares about those things. But what Jesus is saying is that alone will help you exist in the same way that an ant can exist based off of the physical resources in this world. But the things that give you purpose, the things that give you meaning, the things that give you life, those are the words that come from God's mouth. The bread that comes from God's mouth. The word of God. These are the things that your soul gets to feast on. And so sure, if I die out here in the wilderness, Jesus is saying this, if I die out here in the wilderness, my life has not lost its purpose and its meaning because my soul feasts on something that could never be taken away from me. God loves me. Because here are two things about temptation. Sometimes temptation is a trick. Sometimes temptation is a test. Here's how you know the difference. Tricks, trip, tricks, trap, and trip. But tests reveal who we really are. Tests reveal who we really are. If you want to find out what this sponge is really about and what is really in this sponge, what do you do? You squeeze the sponge. 
and you find that there's water in it. Of course, it makes so much sense. As Jesus is squeezed, as the devil is trying to trick and trap and trip Jesus, Jesus is squeezed and we see who he really is. He breathes, he speaks, he lives the word of God. It is in him. And when you squeeze him, that is what comes out of him. But here's the thing that I think we really need to take away from this temptation that Jesus overcomes. How do you know that you're being tricked? I mean, because sometimes that discernment is hard. Is this something that I should really listen to? Or is this a voice that is simply tricking me? First and foremost, it's the thing that, de that the devil tries to attack on us. It's this. If I'm being tempted to believe that God doesn't love me, it's a trick. At the same time, if I'm being tempted to believe that God doesn't love that person that I'm angry at or that I'm upset with or that I'm bitter with, it's a trick. God will test us. because God wants to reveal to us, show us, here's where you really are. But the devil will try to trick us and trap us and trip us. And if I'm tempted to believe God doesn't love me, it's a trick. God will never trick you. We got to move quickly. So let's go on to the second temptation. Satan says to Jesus, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. He takes them up to this really high mountain place. Uh, I will give you uh, these kingdoms and authority over them because they are mine to give to anyone I please. It's a trick. It's a lie. It's deception. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Quickly, again, Jesus quotes something that you've heard before already in this sermon. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And here is a truth about temptation that we can get away from this. Shortcuts are short-lived. Jesus has a grueling path before him. And it is much more grueling than 40 days in the wilderness without food. It's way harder than fasting. He is on a path to the cross. And he's not just going to die a physical death, but this spiritual death where he takes on the weight of the sin of the world. Like he's taking this. It is this grueling, long, excruciating path before him. And he won't take the shortcut to the glory that his father has promised him and given him and said belongs to you. Jesus knows whatever you can give me, Satan, is not anything that's worth having because it's a shortcut. And every single one of us, we can be tempted by shortcuts. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed at how many of you tell me that you've run a marathon before. Here's a picture from the Boston Marathon from, looks like 2019 if I'm reading the paint right there. It's a long race, right? In 1980, they ran that race like they always run it. And I imagine the crowds who are running this race, somewhere close to about 30,000 people, they're getting tired, they're getting weary and worn out, and they might be tempted to leave and to quit. And around mile 17 of a marathon is when you really start to think, wow, people are crazy for spending money on skiing, but I am delirious for spending money on this. In 1980, as the crowds are suffering and hurting their way through this race, around came the corner, of the final stretch of the Boston Marathon, and this runner is at a dead sprint and moving very quickly, finishes the race and wins, and they crown the runner, and they put the medal on them, and, and everybody's cheering for them. Eight days later, they found out that that runner did not run the full race, only about the last half mile. <laughs> and for about eight days, it looked like that person was the champion, right? But shortcuts are short-lived. 
Are you really frustrated because you're seeing the people in your life who take shortcuts seem to be having it all figured out? Seem to get all the blessings? It says this in Psalm chapter 37. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. But trust in the Lord and do good. Then you, will then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. God doesn't give us shortcuts. He offers us the opportunity to trust him through any test, through any trial. And in those moments, he refuses to trick us. He refuses to trip us up including when the devil says, here's a great trick, the people who are taking shortcuts are winning. No, they're not. So another truth about temptation is this, if you could show me the next slide. Jesus didn't need more power. The devil's telling him, I'll give you more power. It's a quick way to it. He doesn't need it. And if that Jesus is with you, it means you don't need more power either. And there are a lot of different things, places, systems, whatever in this world that I think would offer Christians, hey, if, if you cut a deal for me, I'll give you more power. We don't need more power. We've got Jesus who rose from the dead. We don't need it. With all due respect to the most powerful things in this world, they pale in comparison to our king. Our king who showed us the true way of living. The third temptation that Jesus faces, Satan takes him up to a cliff and says, if you are the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. Jesus again quotes scripture. This is in Deuteronomy. Once again, you've already heard this. When Jesus responds, he says, the scriptures also say, keep in mind when the devil tells Jesus, you should do this because he uses scripture for it. Isn't that interesting? Like, the devil knows what the Bible says, but Jesus actually is the living, breathing word of God. You squeeze him, and the word of God comes out. He doesn't just know what's in there. He's living it out. He's the true human, living for true creation. So we might truly experience it someday. He says, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. And we got that from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So here's just another truth about temptation. God cannot be tricked, and he won't trick you. But then also, God doesn't need to be tested. Because in the same way that the people in the book of Deuteronomy could look back and see God's faithfulness, we get to see God's faithfulness. The God who will not be tricked, trapped, deceived, manipulated, or taken away from you just because the temptations show up in our life. Just because they're difficult. You can actually overcome temptation because the same spirit that filled Jesus when he walked into the wilderness is with us too. So here's what it looks like to overcome temptation. These are three things. It's not all the things, but here are three things. The first one is filled with the Spirit. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he is filled with the Spirit. When I am squeezed in the tests of my life, my hope is that people would see that the Word of God comes out of me. That the Spirit of the Lord is within me. Now don't get me wrong, I am a human being and so a lot of other things are coming out too. When I'm hangry, I'm usually not quoting the Bible. Jesus did. It's pretty crazy. I also want to live God's word. Our little like uh, motto, slogan, phrase that we're putting with the whole Holy Bible in the year is we want to read it, learn it, live it. We don't want to just be biblically literate like the devil. We want to, <laughs> if you only know what the Bible says, you're not living it out. I'm not calling you the devil. So <laughs> save me the emails. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. We don't want to just know it, we, we, we want to live it out. We don't want to just be biblically fluent, but, or biblically literate, but biblically fluent. We, we want, when, we, when we're squeezed, we, 
We want the word of God to come out of us. And we can do this by copying Jesus. Like, yeah, you're going to fa face tests in your life, but here's the cool thing. My wife, I've told you before, she's a first grade teacher. She would always tell her students, don't cheat, don't copy. Jesus says, here's the answer. <laughs> it's like, come on! When I was in first grade, our teachers would, during the spelling test, they would have us put up like a folder or something to make sure nobody was copying on our spelling tests. And I would set up folder here, folder here, and a fork over the folder. And I'd just be like, what are you looking at, Kirby? You know, like, you know. Jesus, he's not trying to hold back his answers because it's an answer for everybody to receive and to know and to live in. Like the answers to true creation, to true living, it, it's not a secret. Jesus says, go ahead and copy me. I was tested. We see that through this story. And we also see that at the end of Jesus's life. When Jesus is on the cross, he's facing another test. I wonder what the temptation must have been like. And everybody around him had some sort of idea. If you really are who you say you are, and if we're reading this book, the gospel according to Luke, according to Luke if Jesus really is who Luke is claiming he is, why isn't he doing something about it? Why isn't he performing his power for the entire world to see? Why isn't he using it for his own comfort? One of the criminals who's on a cross next to him looks at Jesus and says, so you're the Messiah, are you? You're the deliverer. You're the powerful one. You're the one who's supposed to save people. Prove it by saving yourself. Test. Temptation. The Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus even answered that criminal. And a lot of times we go to the next portion of that passage where there's another criminal who's looking at Jesus and says, remember me when, when you enter into your paradise. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we, we go to that and we're like, I'm the thief on the cross. It's just remember me. And that's true. But you know what? I'm actually also that thief on the cross. Just do something right now. Give me the shortcut. Get me out of this. I hate this. What are you doing to me? And it's not that Jesus doesn't love that criminal on the cross. He's dying for his sins too. Like every single person that Jesus has an issue with, every single person that he has a debate with, even the Pharisees who just like, engage in these seemingly like passionate arguments with Jesus, he's dying for them too. Like the testers, the tricksters, the people who are trying to manipulate us and deceive us. And I think that the devil tries to trick us and deceive us by saying, Jesus isn't really dying for those people. Well, if Jesus is dying for me and for my sins, most certainly he's dying for all of us because I know what's in here. And if he could die for me, he'd die for anybody. And this criminal's on the cross. He's saying, what? Save yourself. Do something. What's he really saying? Save me. Do something about this. Jump off the cliff. Worship whoever you need to. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus on the cross, he quotes scripture. Again, he's squeezed and the word of God comes out of him. And at the end of Luke chapter 23, it says this. Jesus cried out, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. At the end of his life, when he is squeezed, I mean, the life is squeezed out of him. What do we see at his core? He trusts his father. It's a difficult word, father. Um, because whether you have a good dad or a bad dad, or a good mom or a bad mom, 
You've seen brokenness in families. You've seen broken relationships. You've seen toxicity. You've seen tricks and traps among people. And it happens when relationships go wrong, and sometimes those family relationships are the ones that go wrong. And because God describes his love for you in this family sort of way, I love you, this unconditionality, this kind of love that says we show up in the same household and maybe we don't always get along, but nothing could change my love for you. Because God's described in that sort of family way, sometimes we put our experiences with families here on earth with what an experience in God's family must be like, one that's broken and conditional and sometimes manipulative and broken. But God's showing us what true humanity looks like in true creation. And so I wonder if God's actually inviting us to say, stop putting those things on me and instead take what you're learning from me and transform the world, including families, including friendships, including your acquaintanceships, including your relationships with the people you hate. Take what you're learning from me and apply it there. Please don't see me through the lens of this world, but instead see this world through the lens of my love for you. He is a good father. When we look back, we can have the courage to look up. And wait, I'm going to see somebody who loves me because he was there for me when I was hurting. And when I walk forward, I know there will continue to be temptations and trials and tests and tests, but he will never trick me. He will never trap me. I will not get to the end of my life and I will not get to the end of this day and he'll say, guess what? I didn't mean it. He meant it. He spoke you into creation. His word lasts forever. And he spoke you into creation with a word, which means you're going to last forever. He's not going to let anything happen to you. Anything that could really take you from him. We may not have enough food to eat. We may not live physically here on this earth forever. But God has a redemption plan for all of humanity, for all of creation, for true living, for true creation. We're going to experience it. And it means that when I face the trials, when I face the temptations, when I face the tests, I can copy the life and the behavior and the obedience, but most of all, the trust of Jesus, who knew what was coming in his way, what was coming his way, and he refused to take a shortcut. Father, I trust you. We could go through all the different steps of how to overcome temptation, but at the end of the day, it comes down to do I trust God? Trust your good father, the one who's been there for you, the one who calls out to you now, and the one who's calling you into something really beautiful and really special. Sometimes it has ugly circumstances, but the beautiful thing is he's in it. Trust your father. Follow Jesus. Amen. Let's stand on up and we'll close down with, with singing a song.